Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from The Book of the Sword, published in 1884 and written by Richard Francis Burton. This book really helped me appreciate the importance of the sword and its place in the history of the world. While the sword itself may be seen as a weapon an instrument of death to many. It is an instrument that defined eras and civilizations across the entire globe. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I always like to say thank you to the listeners. Thanks to Sharon in Australia for your message via the website. Alice Yardley for your story on Instagram. I'm glad it's helping. And Sleepless in NJ on Podcast Republic. I'm glad that the podcast is able to help you get the rest you need in these challenging times. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, please subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com where you can support the podcast. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Book of the Sword by Richard F. Burton To the memory of my old and dear college friend, Alfred Bate Richards, who in years gone by accepted the dedication of these pages. Forward I wanted a book on the sword, not a treatise on cart and tears said the publisher, when some years ago my earliest manuscript was sent to him. It struck me then and there that the publisher was right. Consequently, the volume was rewritten after a more general and less professional fashion. I have only one wish that the reader and reviewer can grant, namely a fair field and no favour for certain advanced views of Egyptology. 
It is my conviction that this study, still in its infancy, will greatly modify almost all our preconceived views of archaeological history. Richard F. Burton, November 20, 1883 The history of the sword is the history of humanity. The white arm means something more than the oldest, the most universal, the most varied of weapons, the only one which has lived through all time. He, she or it, the gender of the sword varies, has been worshipped with priestly sacrifices as a present god. Hebrew revelation represents the sharp and two-edged sword going out of the mouth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We read of a sword of God, a holy sword, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And I came not to send peace but a sword, meaning the warfare and martyrdom of man. On a lower plane, the sword became the invention and the favourite arm of the gods and the demigods, a gift of magic, one of the treasures sent down from heaven, which made Mulsabar, Malik Kabir the great king, divine, and Volunda, Quida, Gallant or Wayland Smith a hero. It was consecrated to the deities and was stored in the temple and in the church. It was the key of heaven and hell. The saying is, if there were no sword, there would be no law of Muhammad and the Muslim's brave's highest title was Sayyaf Allah, Sword of Allah. Uniformly and persistently personal, the sword became no longer an abstraction but a personage, endowed with human as well as superhuman qualities. He was a sentient being who spoke, and sang, and joyed, and grieved. Identified with his wearer, he was an object of affection, and was pompously named as well-beloved son and heir. To surrender the sword was submission, to break the sword was degradation, to kiss the sword was, and in places still is, the highest form of oath and homage. The sword killed and cured. The hero, when hopeless, fell upon his sword, and the heroine, like Lucretia and Calphonia, used the blade standing, the sword cut the Gordian knot of every difficulty. The sword was the symbol of justice and of martyrdom, 
and accompanied the wearer to the tomb as well as to the feast and the fight. Lay on my coffin a sword, said dying Heinrich Hein, for I have warred and doubtily to win freedom for mankind. From days immemorial of the Queen of Weapons, a creator as well as a destroyer, carved out history, formed the nations, and shaped the world. She decided the Alexandrine and the Caesarian victories, which opened new prospects to human ken. She diffused everywhere the bright lights and splendid benefits of war and conquest, whose functions are all important in the formative and progressive processes. It is no paradox to assert la guerre enfant le droit. Without war there would be no right. The cost of life, says Emerson, the dreary havoc of comfort and time, are overpaid by the vistas it opens of eternal law, reconstructing and uplifting society. It breaks up the old horizon, and we see through the rifts a wider view. War again benefits society by raising its tone above the ineffable littleness and meanness which characterise the everyday life of the many. In the presence of the great destroyer, petty feuds and miserable envy, hatred and malice stand hushed and awestruck. Very hollow in these days sounds Voltaire's banter on war when he says that a king picks up a parcel of men who have nothing to do, dresses them in blue cloth, at two shillings a yard, binds their hats with coarse white worsted, turns them to the right and left, and marches them away for glory. The sword, and only the sword, raised the worthier race to power upon the ruins of impotent savagery, and she carried in her train, from time immemorial, throughout the civilised world, Asiatic Africa, Asia, and Europe, the arts and the sciences which humanise mankind. In fact, whatever apparent evil the sword may have done, she worked for the highest ultimate good. With the Arabs, the sword was a type of individuality. Thus, Shanfara, the fleet foot, sings in Lamaya. Three friends, the heart no fear shall know. The sharp white sword, the yellow bow. The wielded sword blade knows my hand. The spear obeys my lusty arm. This punador presently extended westward, 
during the knightly ages the good sword of the Palladin and the Chevalier embodied a new faith, the religion of honour, the first step towards the religion of humanity. These men once more taught the sublime truth, the splendid doctrine known to the Stoics and the Pharisees, but unaccountably neglected in their later creeds. Their recklessness of all the consequences soared worlds high above the various egotistic systems which bribe men to do good for a personal and private consideration to win the world or to save his soul. Hence Aristotle blamed his contemporaries, the Spartans. They are indeed good men, but they have not the supreme consummate excellence of loving all things worthy, decent and laudable, purely as such and for their own sakes, nor of practising virtue for no other motive but the sole love of her own innate beauty. The everlasting law of honour, binding on all and peculiar to each, would have thoroughly satisfied the Staggerite's highest aspirations. In knightly hands the sword acknowledged no fate, but that of freedom and free will, and it bred the very spirit of chivalry, a keen personal sentiment of self-respect, of dignity and of loyalty, with the noble desire to protect weakness against and the abuse of strength. The knightly sword was ever the representative idea, the present and eternal symbol of all that man most prized, courage and freedom. The names describe her quality. She is Joyeuse and Latisona. He is Zulfikar, sire of splitting, and quest in a bay, biter of the millstone. The weapon was everywhere, held to be the best friend of bravery, and the worst foe of perfidy, the companion of authority, and the token of commandment, the outward and visible sign of force and fidelity of conquest and dominion, of all that humanity wants to have and wants to be. The sword was carried by and before kings, and the brand, not the scepter, noted their seals of fate. As the firm friend of the crown and of the ermine robe, it became the second fountain of honour. Amongst the ancient Germans, even the judges sat armed on the judgment seat, 
and at marriages it represented the bridegroom in his absence. Noble and nobling, its touch upon the shoulder conferred the prize of knighthood. As Balkishish it was and still is, the highest testimony to the soldier's character, a proof that he is brave as his sword blade. Its presence was a moral lesson, unlike the Greeks, the Romans and the Hebrews. Western and Southern Europe, during its chivalrous ages, appeared nowhere and on no occasion without the sword. It was ever ready to leap from its sheath in the cause of weakness and at the call of honour. Hence, with its arrogant individuality, the sword still remained the all-sufficient type and token of the higher sentiments and the higher tendencies of human nature. In society, the position of the sword was remarkable. Its aspect was brilliant. Its manners were courtly. Its habits were punctilious and its connections were patrician. Its very vices were glittering for most of them were the abuses which could not buy a company its uses. It bore itself haughtily as a victor, an arbiter, and necessarily there were times when its superlative qualities showed corresponding defects. Handled by the vile it too often became, in the syllogism of violence, an incubus, a blusterer, a bully, a tyrant, a murderer, an assassin, in fact, death's stamp, and under such conditions, it was a corruption of the best. But its lapses were individual and transient, its benefits to humanity were general and ever-enduring. The highest period of the sword was the early 16th century, that mighty landmark separating the dark past from the brilliant present of Europe, the sudden awakening and excitement of man's mind, produced by the revival of learning and the marriage union of the West with the East, by the discovering of a new hemisphere, the doubling of the world, by the so-called reformation, a northern protest against the slavery of the soul, by the widespread of the printing press, which meant knowledge and simultaneously by the illumination of that electric spark generated from the contact of human thought suddenly changed the status of the sword. It was no longer an assailant, a slaughterer. 
it became a defender, a preserver. It learned to shield as well as sword, and now arose swordsmanship proper, when the art of arms meant amongst the old masters, the art of fence. The 16th century was its golden age. At this time the sword was not only the queen of weapons, but the weapon paramount between man and man. Then advancing by slow, stealthy and stumbling steps, the age of gunpowder, of villainous saltpeter, appeared upon the scene of life. Gradually the bayonet, a modern modification of the pike, which again derives from the savage spear, one of the earliest forms of the arm blanc, ousted the sword amongst infantry, because the former could be combined with the firepiece. A century afterwards, cavalrymen learned in the Federal-Confederate War to prefer the revolver and repeater, the breech loader and the reservoir gun to the sabre of past generations. It became an axiom that in a cavalry charge the spur, not the sword, gains the day, by no means a unique nor even a singular process of progress, is this return towards the past, this falling back upon the instincts of primitive invention, this recurrence to childhood. When the science of war reverted to ballistics, it practically revived the practice of the first ages, and the characteristic attack of the savage and the barbarian who, as a rule, throw their weapons. The cannon is the ballista, and the arblast the manginal, and the trebuchet worked not by muscular, but by chemical forces. The torpedo is still the old, old petard. The spur of the ironclad is the long disused embolon, rostrum or beak. And the steam power is a rough, cheap substitute for manpower. For the banks of oarsmen, whose work had a delicacy of manipulation unknown to machinery, however ingenious. The armed nations which in Europe are again becoming the substitutes for standing armies, represent the savage and barbarous stages of society. The proto-historic races, amongst which every man between the ages of fifteen and fifty, is a man-at-arms. It is the same in moral matters. The general spread of the revolutionary spirit, 
of republicanism, of democratic ideas, of communistic, socialistic and nihilistic rights and claims now acting so powerfully upon society and upon the brotherhood of nations is a redawning of that early day when the peoples ruled themselves and were not yet governed by priestly and soldier kings. It is the same even in the immaterials. The Swedenborgian school, popularly known by the trivial name spiritualism, has revived magic and this new motor force, for such I call it, has resurrected the ghost, which many a wise head supposed to have been laid forever. The death song of the sword has been sung, and we are told that steel has ceased to be a gentleman, Not so and by no means so. These are mere insular and insulated views and England, though a grand figure, the mother of nations, the modern Rome, is yet but a fraction of the world. The Englishman and for that matter, the German and the Scandinavian, adopted with a protest, and right unwillingly, swordsmanship proper, that is, repair and point, the peculiar and special weapon, offensive and defensive, the peculiar and special weapon of southern Europe, Spain, Italy and France. During the most flourishing age of the sword, it is rare to find a blade bearing the same name of an English marker, and English inscriptions seldom date earlier than the 18th century. The reason is evident. The northerners hacked with hangers, they hewed with hatchets, and they cut with cutlasses because the arms suited their bulk and stature, weight and strength. But such weapons are the brutality of the sword. In England swordsmanship is, and ever was, an exotic like the sentiment, as opposed to the knowledge of art, It is the property of the few, not of the many, and being rare, it is somewhat un-English. But the case is different on the continent of Europe. Probably at no period during the last four centuries has the sword been so ardently studied as it is now by the Latin race in France and Italy. At no time have the schools been so distinguished for intellectual as well as moral proficiency. The use of the foil baited and unbaited 
has once more become a quasi-universal, a duello in the most approved fashion of her ancestors, was lately proposed in September 1882 by ten journalists of a Parisian paper to as many on the staff of a rival publication. Even the softer sex in France and Italy has become cunning of fence, and women are among the most prosperous pupils of the salled arms. Witness, for instance, the ill-fated Medelle Fagine of the Théâtre Francais, so celebrated for her skill in the cart and the tears, and the reason demonstrative. Nor is the cause of this wider diffusion so far to seek. In the presence of arms and precision, the sword as a means of offence and defence may practically fall for a time into disuse. It may no longer be the arm paramount or represent an idea. It may have come down from its high estate as Tudor to the noble and to the great. Yet not the less it has, and will ever have, it's got work to do. The ex-queen now appears as instructress general in the state of arms, as the mathematic is the basis of all exact science, swordplay teaches the soldier to handle every other weapon. This is well known to continental armies, in which each regiment has its own fencing establishment. Again, men of thought cannot ignore the intrinsic value of the sword for stimulating physical qualities. The best of calisthenics, this energetic educator, teaches the man to carry himself like a soldier. A compendium of gymnastics, it increases strength and activity, dexterity and rapidity of movement. Professors calculate that one hour of hard fencing wastes 40 ounces by perspiration and respiration. The foil is still the best training tool for the consensus of eye and hand, for the judgment of distance and opportunity, and, in fact, for the practice of combat. And thus, swordsmanship engenders moral confidence and self-reliance, while it stimulates a habit of resource. And it is not without suggesting, even in the schools, that the curious, fantastic, very noble generosity, proper to itself alone, and now when the vain glory of violence has passed away from the sword, with the customs of a past age, 
we can hardly ignore the fact that the manners of nations have changed, not for the best. As soon as the sword ceased to be worn in France, a Frenchman said of his compatriots, the politest people in Europe had suddenly become the rudest. That gallant and courteous bearing, which in England during the early 19th century so charmed the fiery and fastidious Alfieri, lingers only amongst a few. True the swashbuckler, the professional duelist, has disappeared, but courtesy and punctiliousness, the politeness of man to man, and respect and deference of man to woman, the very conception of the knightly character, have to a great extent been improved off. The latter condition of society indeed seems to survive only in the most cultivated classes of Europe and popularly amongst the citizens of the United States, a curious oasis of chivalry in a waste of bold utilitarianism preserved not by the sword, but by the revolver. Our England has abolished the duello without substituting aught better for it. She has stopped the effect and left the cause. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy. If you're still up for another episode, you're welcome to listen to any other episode from the Boy to Sleep podcast. In the meantime, I'll be bringing you a new episode to help you get to sleep. Until next time, good night.